0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: These leaders let you know from the very start of their campaigns who they are by preaching violence like Trump did and Duterte and Bolsonaro. And yet people invite them into the system or embrace them and then are amazed when they don't become more institutional, indeed they become more radicalized.
0: That's Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at NYU and the author of Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. She focuses on the history of authoritarianism, democracy, and propaganda. Her most recent book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, looks at how illiberal leaders use corruption and violence to maintain power and how they can be defeated. Ben-Ghiat joins me this week to discuss the rise of fascist politics in our time. We talk about the recent election of Georgia Maloney in Italy, the reign of Vladimir Putin, and the tactics of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Kelly, who asks, I've seen folks speculating that the Federalist Society is drafting large portions of Judge Cannon's opinions. Is that allowed? It feels akin to an ex parte communication if DOJ doesn't have access, e.g. as an amicus brief. But Federalist Society isn't a party, so maybe it's okay? So Kelly, that's a very interesting question. You're obviously talking about Judge Cannon, who's a federal district court judge in the Southern District of Florida and who has been presiding over the issues relating to the search of Donald Trump's documents at Mar-a-Lago. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I have not agreed with all of the things that she's ruled on in the Mar-a-Lago matter. I don't agree with some of the ways she's dealt with a special master, Ray Deary, from the Eastern District of New York. But not agreeing with someone's opinions and believing that she's actually outsourced her opinions and her job to a third-party organization like the Federal Society are two different things. There's no evidence she's doing that. There's no basis to believe that she's doing that. It is true that the Federalist Society is very influential in conservative circles, that the Federalist Society is deeply influential in determining who gets picked to be on the bench, and in particular on the Supreme Court of the United States. But I don't see a reason to think that she's actually having people outside of her chambers write opinions for her. And I understand why, given how much focus there is on this case, given how much scrutiny there is on this matter, that people want to jump to conclusions about judges with whom they disagree. But I'll tell you from my personal experience, as I said last week, there are lots of judges in lots of cases with whom I and others disagree from time to time. But I think it's too quick to jump to conclusions that are outlandish, like the ones that are being suggested to you. This question comes in a tweet from BC Alex Mom, who writes, I know juries are chosen for their open minds, But are there any tactics that you have used when a jury looks like they are for the defendant to persuade them to convict? Well, you know, that's also an interesting question. And I'm going to disabuse you of the notion that there are particular tactics or tricks to persuade juries. Back in the Southern District of New York, and maybe in other districts as well, there was kind of an admonition to the jury that prosecutors often made in opening statements. We would tell the jury to do three things. One, pay attention to the evidence as it came in. Two, follow the instructions of the judge about the law as given. And three, use your common sense. And often it was the case that this appeal to common sense, not so much to the law, not so much to the instructions of the judge, but but plain, simple, common sense. We would tell them not to leave that at the door. And so if there's anything, I don't call it a tactic, if there's any approach to trying to persuade a jury that someone should be convicted of a crime if you believe in your heart and in your mind, and based on your research and your investigation, that the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that's to appeal to jurors' common sense. Because often it'll be the case that defense lawyers, which is their job to do, to get an acquittal, to change the subject or distract from the evidence, you train them back on the evidence and their common sense. And that's the best approach that I know. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Anderson Jotavia, who asks, how are you? Well, thanks Thanks for asking. You know, I feel different things at different times. What I'm feeling right now, the way I'm feeling right now, I think is best encapsulated in what I think was the best answer to that question that I've heard in a long time. And it comes from one of my favorite movies, the 1997 film Gross Point Blank, starring John Cusack and his character... Martin Q. Blank, by the way, is a professional assassin. And that might not be your bag, but it's a fun movie, in my view. At some point in the film, he's talking with his therapist, played by the brilliant Alan Arkin. And the John Cusack character says, I'm feeling uneasy, man. And that, I guess, in recent times explains how I feel. I don't feel terrible. I don't feel utterly pessimistic. But I'm uneasy. I'm uneasy about what's going to happen with the country. I'm uneasy about what's going to happen in Ukraine. I'm uneasy about... What's going to happen with our political system? I have hope, but I also have some pessimism. And the combination of all that, in answer to your question, how are you? I'm feeling uneasy, man. This question comes in an email from Dean, who writes, Hi, Preet. In your interview with Representative Raskin, he mentioned the possibility of a multimedia presentation of the January 6th report. If you were to pick a celebrity to present or narrate this presentation, Who would you pick and why? Well, you know, I have a pick in mind, and I'm going to start a rumor right here, which I don't feel bad about. Recently, you might have heard that the great actor with an unsurpassed, beautiful, deep voice, James Earl Jones, has retired from the business of voicing Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies. So, A, he would be my pick. B, it's obvious why. And see, I'm going to hope and believe for the time being that the reason he's retired from voicing Darth Vader is he's gearing up to do the voice for the January 6th report. But in all seriousness, I don't know that it matters who does any narration, if it needs to be a celebrity, if it needs to be somebody with particular standing in the world. I just think that they need to do a clear job at presenting the evidence, presenting visual evidence combined with documentary evidence, combined with testimonial evidence in the way that they've been doing so far. And I trust them to do a good job because they have been up to this point. We'll be right back with my conversation with Ruth Ben-Ghiat.
2: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise, or wherever you listen.
0: On September 25th, the far-right politician Georgia Maloney was elected Italy's first female prime minister. Maloney's Brothers of Italy party evolved from the remnants of Mussolini's fascist party, and its victory is a concern to many around the world. Maloney is one of a handful of far-right leaders— who've risen to power in recent years. NYU professor and fascism expert, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, joins me to discuss what has brought us to this point and where she thinks we're headed. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, It's good for you to be here. There's a lot of talk about a lot of things and you're expert on certain things. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was there's a lot of chatter about a woman who is very likely to be the next leader of Italy. Georgia Maloney and people are talking about it and what it portends not just for Italy but for Europe and for the world. Even though Italy is not the biggest country uh, on our planet, could you start by just giving us a primer on who Georgia Maloney is and what she's about?
1: Yes. Yeah, so Georgia Maloney is breaking with tradition because she is the first female prime minister Italy has had. She's also the first. Uh, prime minister who comes from the neo-fascist political tradition. And what this means is, you know, when Mussolini was killed and the original fascist party was uh, banned in 1945, a new fascist party, neo-fascist, was uh, formed right after the war. And so Italy was very different than Germany, where the allies just took a Different tack to Italy, thinking, oh, they were good people who followed a bad man. So this neo-fascist party became it was legal, and it became the fourth largest party in Italy by the 60s. So there's always been a kind of normalization of the extreme right in politics. And Giorgio Maloney came up uh, as a hardcore militant in this f- neo-fascist party, uh, becoming the leader of the student organization and an admirer of Mussolini. And so that—that's her. She wasn't just a member; she was, you know, a leading a leader of this uh, party. And the current party that is uh, going to be the main party of the governing coalition is called Brothers of Italy. It's a new, newish party. It was founded in 2012 by Maloney and, and others. Uh, and the reason it was founded is important because at the time. There was no autonomous, independent, extreme right party in Italy, because the existing one had fused with Berlusconi's party. So her her political career, both in this new party, has been dedicated to kind of preserving the heritage of fascism into the 21st century.
0: But Georgia Maloney and her party do not embrace the term fascism or neo-fascism, am I Right.
1: That's correct. Um, she's describing herself uh, as a conservative, and she includes in this uh, descriptor uh, Orban's Hungary, the newly radicalized GOP in our country. She sees she talks very matter of factly about, you know, being on the same page as the GOP, and she was an admirer of Putin uh, until just you know a few years ago, or even later. And so it's hard to know what conservative really means. Uh, She's rabidly anti-immigrant. She's said that there shouldn't be any new mosques built in Italy. Um, So her positions have a whiff of the extreme right about them, even though she calls herself conservative.
0: So I'm I'm confused and wondering about this. Does she see herself as a return in some way to Mussolini or as something very, very different is she trying to fool people, in your mind, by not embracing the fascist or neo-fascist label? Or is it just more palatable, given the local politics of that country, not to use those terms or embrace those terms?
1: It's a little of all those things because, in fact, um, the historic fascism, which was a one-party state, you know, a true dictatorship, no opposition permitted... Outside of North Korea or China, which are the communist tradition, you you don't have that as much anymore. Today we have uh, on the extreme right we have what are called electoral autocracies, where you come to power through elections, you maintain elections, and then you, as Viktor Orbán has done, you kind of game the system over time so that it results uh, in the gives you the results you need. And the GOP is is on this path with all its election denial. So it wouldn't be a return to fascism per se. It's more a sense of um, the ideals of extreme nationalism, anti-leftist, anti-immigrant xenophobia, conspiracy theories. Uh, She's a big uh, believer of great replacement theory, the idea that uh, non-white Uh, births are uh, increasing, and that poses a threat to white Christian civilization. So it's not a literal return to fascism anyway, but those ideals, and the more you know about fascism, basically, as I do, I've studied fascism, the original fascism for years, the more you recognize that inheritance in what she says today.
0: When someone with fascistic, if I can use that adjective, Fascistic tendencies or rooted in fascism comes to power in a country, generally speaking. Do people tend to underreact or overreact?
1: Um, They often underreact. And I wrote my book, Strong Men, which is case studies starting with Mussolini and Hitler going up to uh, Orban and Trump and Putin. There are these patterns that emerge. And one is that often conservative elites have... Uh, acted to bring these kind of insurgent figures uh, who often come from outside of politics um, into the system, thinking that they can use them, uh, thinking they will kind of do their bidding, uh, and they will then become normal and they will become calm when they become head of state. And in the case of Trump, the word used was the pivot that Trump's going to pivot to being a normal politician. And I was like, no, he's not. He's not. He is who he says he is. He is the I can stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. Uh, so these, these leaders let you know from the very start of their campaigns who they are by preaching violence like Trump did and Duterte and Bolsonaro. And yet people invite them into the system or embrace them and then are amazed when they don't become more institutional indeed, they become more radicalized.
0: And so why is that? Is that just general wishful thinking on the part of the public, naivete, even though we now have you know, a century of scholarship, including lots of your scholarship, showing these patterns? Why do we persist in underreacting?
1: It's a really interesting question. Um, it depends who it is for, if we're really talking about the public, it's very upsetting to, see your country as a country that could embrace extremism, authoritarianism. And so over and over, it, so it's not just America that says it can't happen here. <laughs> the Germans thought, oh, well, it can't happen here because we're, we're the most cultured people on earth. In fact, Germany, when Hitler took over, it wasn't just high culture, they had the most advanced um you know, graphic design culture, advertising culture, engineering science. They were like way in the avant-garde. And so they too thought that it couldn't happen here. And even, you know, Italian fascism, Mussolini got power really fast, but Italian Jews thought, well, he's not going to go after us because he's not Hitler. So it's a little bit of denial, a little bit of wishful thinking because it's very difficult. To see your country as being able, it's scary uh, as going down that path, it also means that you might have to do something. Right. You might have to get involved. You can't take your rights for granted anymore. And America is going has been going through this since the Trump years.
0: So does the rising strongman who comes into power in a country understand that the mass of people will not believe what they say and will engage in wishful thinking and head-in-the-sand behavior? And allow them to slip into power while the core the base will understand that they mean what they say uh, and that subset of the population who wants a strong man gets the right message and the other folks miss the message is that all intentional or does that just happen
1: it's a little of both um one of the questions i get most commonly is is there a master plan
0: right good question
1: <laughs> uh, is or for example is trump reading a manual because uh, there's a reason that I was able to predict pretty much everything he did, including I didn't know what form it would take that he wouldn't leave office because I studied all these other guys. Yeah,
0: you wrote the manual. Thanks very much. Yeah.
1: And the thing about them is that which takes people by surprise is that they, are, they truly are uh, they have similar personalities. And it was very disturbing to realize that Trump has a very similar personality to the people in the past and they are opportunists. They are transactional beings. And so they will ally with anyone, and they will say anything to anyone to get what they need. And that means saying one thing to one group and you know another thing the opposite to the next group. It also means, it's very interesting, and Trump is the latest example, they end up with these very eclectic, strange, seeming constituencies where you have gangsters and priests, uh, in Trump you had orthodox Jews and also neo-Nazis, housewives. And this is because they are all things to all people. And the major principle of, of the strongmen is that they will be whatever the, the culture needs them to be in that moment.
0: Are they acting according to a manual and a plan? Or more likely, and what it seems to be sometimes, there are certain people who just know how to improvise and and react by instinct that matches a pattern of the people who go before them. And should that give us comfort or should that cause us to be even more queasy?
1: So it is, it's a meeting of personality and circumstance. And there are certain patterns that you could say prepare a society to embrace people like a, a Trump or a Mussolini. And one of them is that when a society has had a huge amount of social progress, um, it could be gender uh, emancipation, it could be racial equity, um, workers' rights, that kind of sets the stage for a reaction. And in fact, Mussolini, back in the 1920s, he called fascism a revolution of reaction because it shakes everything up, creates new constituencies, new alliances, uh, upends norms legalizes lawlessness but it's a return to the way things were before and so they watch what each other is doing when they're having this process so H- hitler was watching mussolini you know trump admires what orban does and what she does in china but these personalities act in similar ways if the society is ripe to have them
0: you know in italy it's interesting, as you point out, Italy has, you know, a history and a past of fascism. And in your book, you begin with Mussolini. Does it matter that, as I understand it, Italy never really had a reckoning or truth and reconciliation like Germany had? Would you be more surprised about the rise of fascism in Germany in the near future?
1: It, it, I mean, there, there is all over the world, there is rising, you know, hate groups, and there's been a spike in Germany as well. But because of denazification and being the, the motor of the Holocaust and Nazism being so central, there were it was just a very different situation in Germany uh, where, you know, everything was banned and there was a very strict legal order. And they didn't follow that in Italy, as we said before. Uh, the neo-fascist party was perfectly legal. And the other, the other thing is Italy's been, a kind of laboratory for right-wing politics. Um, And it really, it gets marginalized in coverage of authoritarianism, Hitler for very, there are good reasons that Hitler's always the center. But first, you know, Mussolini invented fascism and Hitler worshiped Mussolini. He had a bust of Mussolini all through the 20s on his desk and other Nazis were ridiculing him because he was just obsessed with Mussolini who was so successful. Whereas he, you know, his putsch didn't work, he got put in jail, no one wanted to buy his book. So Mussolini, he wrote the template for actually how authoritarianism works today. And then you had Berlusconi in the 1990s uh, who brought the neo-fascists into government for the first time in Europe since 1945 and normalized uh, fascism so that uh, it became, neo-fascism became just a governing ideology And now we have Maloney, who is the first woman and uh, who's the first prime minister from this tradition. So Italy has been very, very important in breaking taboos and establishing new parameters. Um, And I think it should be more central in our considerations.
0: So people understand, someone like Maloney comes to power, not with anything like a majority of support. How much support do you need in a country with a political system like that? To come to power,
1: well, the party is what was wildly successful, and it's grown hugely. And you know, the governing it got like over 25 percent of the vote.
0: Right. So twenty five percent is still a fraction. It's a slice, just like Donald Trump's base, unwavering base in America is only something like thirty percent.
1: Yes. So Italy, you know, Italy is a uh, is a system of coalition government, and so uh, many people are saying. That we don't have to worry so much about Maloney because it's so easy to make a government fall in Italy, and and that's true. I believe though, whenever there's an experiment in extremism in in a kind of rabid minoritarian ideologies and practices that come to the head of state that become normalized as the head of as the practices of the head of state, it stays in the system, even if the government doesn't last very long, and that rabid core of, even if it's a minority, it obtains validation. Just think about what happened with Trump, where he came in and he provided a big tent for all kinds of extremists, not just the neo-Nazis, he said, are very fine people, all kinds of malcontents and, and people who he called them the forgotten, but also all the extremists who'd been waiting for someone to give them momentum and validate them. And in fact, he tells them he loves them, not only on January sixth, but he made them feel like they were part of something and they were understood. And this is what all of these leaders have been able to do. And that's how uh, a very extreme minority faction can actually become the basis for a mass movement.
0: Do you think that in any given population, even in liberal democracies, such as they are, there is naturally and latent a 25 to 30% subset of the population that likes and would be attracted to the right strongman.
1: Yeah, there is, and there's research from a while back uh, that Karen Stenner and others that in any population, there are a percentage, it's about what you mentioned, of people who hold authoritarian views.
0: And, and, and just to pause on that, do we believe that to be true, whether we're talking about the United States or France or the U.K. or any country?
1: Researchers believe it to be true. <laughs> and the way they measure it actually is often through attitudes about non-political institutions, parenting, religion, all all these other institutions where authoritarian attitudes and practices can be rooted and then the idea is that if the right person comes along and the circumstances are correct those people can be activated and energized because it's you know how when uh, propagandists know that effective propaganda builds on things that people already believe right you have to have a core of things that people already believe to be most effective the same with getting people to embrace uh, an authoritarian political figure that Person, if he's smart, will build on things that people already believed uh, in other areas of their life. That's also why there's always such a collusion with authoritarian religious institutions and strongmen. So, you know, you have evangelical Christians, Orthodox Jews, kind of fundamentalist faiths rather than progressive faith traditions. Those are the people who go for strongmen.
0: Yeah. So, if we begin even in liberal democracies and societies with a base of 25 to 30 percent of people who can be activated in this way, that means there's a lot less room for error on the part of the rest of folks in organizing a government and in appealing to people and sending up policies that don't activate that subset. So is the trick over time to reduce the subset that's open to strong men, or is the trick to keep the other 70 percent or, you know, whatever the other opposition would be, keep them united and undivided
1: it's both. It's both. Um, the second is perhaps uh, more more realistic, and Democrats in general have not been uh, as effective in unifying and allying. Now, our country is very unusual because we have this bipartisan system. But I watch every time there's an election now with a strongman figure, and they they do well. I watch to see, I think about what went wrong (laughs) and, you know, either the opposition didn't unite, which is what happened in Italy. They don't have effective messaging. They don't have the same emotional appeal as these populists or they, in in Hungary in the spring, Orban was reelected and the opposition had this big coalition, and so there were high hopes. They all banded together, but what they actually did is they included a far-right party. They, they moved themselves to the right, hoping to siphon off Orban's uh, voters. Instead, they were beaten because, and Orban got even more votes because they did not, in moving to the right, they did not um, come up with an authentic progressive alternative. So allying, being a real alternative with real values and emotional appeal is one of the ways that you you can make the circumstances such that when these figures come on the scene, the opposition will be ready.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Ruth Ben-Gat after this. The other interesting thing is on this issue of whether or not the strongman threat is underappreciated because as you discussed earlier, people engage in wistful thinking and put their heads in the sand, the supporters of the strongman who comes on the scene, they don't say, I don't think, we have a strongman on the scene and he's going to engage in martial law. He's going to do all these things. He says about people like you and people on the American right uh, and observers has said this about some of your writings you're overstating, you're going bananas. These comparisons are ludicrous and ridiculous and they have no basis in fact, and they have no basis in evidence, and you should settle down. I mean, one person wrote recently, professor from the West Coast, that the kinds of things that Georgia Maloney says are kind of the garden variety types of things that governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis might say. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, that's true because um, again, when Georgia Maloney told the Washington Post before the election, uh, very matter of factly that the GOP is is allied they're they're allied with them and that the battles of the GOP are their battles of her party. That's very revealing. Um, indeed, there is this one of the most interesting stories it's a bit underreported or is there's this vast movement among the far right internationally to create a kind of these these networks to create a new, cultural political order and Steve Bannon's very you know busy with this it stretches to Brazil it's not just a euro-american but this is part of it and the more you know about the original fascism even though it looks different today and the way they depended on these cultural networks and the more you know about the outcomes of and the damage that somebody like a Trump can do the more i think it's appropriate i i totally changed my professional life when Trump came on the scene I was writing an academic book on World War II and I I had the skill set to see what was coming and so I decided to start you know speaking to the press right. and writing for CNN and um, as a work of civic education um, because in fact uh, it hasn't been alarmist uh, it has been um, accurate
0: so your response to the Ron DeSantis' comment is not that, oh, it's just a comparison to a blowhard garden variety politician in America. It's that Ron DeSantis himself represents something dangerous and bad.
1: Yes. And he's, if we want to do the big, you know, big picture thinking, he, he's very interesting figure. And I've already written about four op-eds or five about him because he, the second I saw him, I was like, okay, here we go. Because- <laughs> Yeah, explain that. What happens is when somebody like Trump comes in the system and shakes it up, and Trump really, he put the GOP under this authoritarian style discipline. And it's absolutely astonishing what he was able to do because, you know, Mussolini and Berlusconi, they had they created their own parties. So Trump didn't do that. He came from outside to the grand old party. And yet he was able to completely make it his personal tool, right? So when you have somebody like that, they spawn imitators in the system. And so you had Mike Pompeo talking about swagger. So they they embody a style of leadership, a style of manhood that others start to imitate. So Ron DeSantis is very interesting because he was a conservative, Reaganite style conservative, and he totally remade himself because he's very ambitious, he's very opportunistic. And so we saw when he campaigned for governor he made himself into a quote diehard Trump supporter. He even, you know, how he's using people as props uh, with his Martha v- Vineyard stunt. The first prop was his infant, his own infant, where he made a campaign ad where he had like a Trump, you know, uh, flag in his own infant's, you know, crib to show how great he was, and and he's so he's remade himself uh, as the perfect um, example of this new GOP. November, 2020, he proudly said that Florida had no election fraud. And now he's, he's been the first person to have an official office of election crimes and he's made arrests. So he's, he's on the cusp, but he's, he's even, um, absorbed Trump's, um, body, you know, language, his gestures when he speaks. So I look at him as an example of these mini Trumps, these clones who, who come out of the system when someone like Trump has come. And you had this with, they used to be called mini Hitlers, mini, mini Mussolinis, uh, there's mini Orbans. And that's just one of these systemic things that happens when you have a strongman.
0: One thing you talk about with respect to strongmen is the paradox. And this is what you wrote a couple of weeks ago, and I wanna ask you about it. Quote, a paradox of strongman rule is that the more power and money they accumulate, the more paranoid, insecure, and grasping they become. Behind the apparent strength of the autocrat is the fear of losing control and the prospect of a time when they will not be all powerful, end quote. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I think I wrote that in regard to Putin, um, or but it's about late autocracy. The structure of governance that, that these kinds of rulers set up, they all have these inner circles or inner sanctums, and they only want flatterers and family members because they can keep their secrets and be corrupt together and people who won't tell them anything they don't want to hear and trump did a version of this so it was very interesting to see how this inner circle inner sanctum which all autocrats have was replicated in a still functioning democracy under trump and what happens is over time they start to believe their own propaganda and they get their megalomania becomes larger. And the more they have, the more they want. The more control, and they have a mania of possession, they have to possess minds and hearts and bodies, and they don't, we've seen this with the the FBI uh, search of Mar-a-Lago and the whole saga of the classified documents. Strong men do not see any um, separation between public and private. Everything is theirs. Yeah, a proprietary vision of governance. At its peak, you get kleptocracy. So Putin has the biggest kleptocracy since Gaddafi. And Qaddafi, for example, it's been very difficult for victims of his corruption to get their money back because his personal funds were fused with the Libyan state funds, (laughs) all those billions. And so... So this is a, it's a fundamental, Trump was a fundamentally different kind of president than anyone we had before of either party. So of course he had highly sensitive classified documents in a box with family photos and golf balls. <laughs> of course he did. That makes, I wrote, I have a, a newsletter called Lucid, I write about this stuff and I wrote an essay on this exact thing because it totally bears out how these guys behave. And that's why they use, in a full dictatorship, you know, they would use their secret police to uh, find sex partners for themselves. You know, there's this, everything must serve the leader and everything is his.
0: But this is the dangerous part. And in fact, you're right. The quote about the paradox of strongman rule was from something you wrote recently about Putin. And you quote Margaret Macmillan, who observed about Putin, this is a guy who already had it all down to the gold toilet seats in his absurd palace in Crimea. When then, as you write, he made his reckless move on Ukraine. Is the arc of the strong man, because of the psychology and this paradox, does it always result in a huge blunder that costs lots of lives?
1: It often does. And it's been so interesting with uh, this tragic war on Ukraine. It has, it's like seeing a page of this playbook of the late autocrat come to life. And in fact, when Biden and Putin had their um, summit in June 2021, I looked at Putin sitting there and he was put on an equal footing uh, in that beautiful library in Geneva. And he was sitting there, apparently placid, and I got a really bad feeling, actually, really bad feeling. And Biden's goal for this summit was to make, basically make Putin more reasonable and have a more predictable relationship, he said, more stable relationship. And that night I wrote an essay for my newsletter and I said, well, this could cause Putin to become more reckless and less stable <laughs> because he he had it all. And I, I do believe that they get to a point because they're paranoid and this paradox we talked about before, where the prospect of decline, now whether Putin, you know, there've been rumors that he's been ill, so illness can set it off, but just the prospect that they, the idea they're at their peak and that it's going to be downhill. And in fact, he's had to, his popularity was going down. He's had to arrest more and more people. And, you know, look what, look what he's had to do escalating his repression of Navalny. And so they get into this uh, state where they want to make, they think about their legacy and they want to make a grand gesture. And political scientists even have a term. It's called gambling for resurrection where you go for broke but you do it in a way that is ill considered because of what i mentioned before you by then you've excised from your life any critics anyone who's really going to tell you what the story is so putin started this war we know now without you know gaming it out and his sanctions with his economic advisors he didn't consult his military it's like exactly what mussolini started to do and Mussolini was eventually removed in a palace coup for incompetency uh, when the Allies uh, you know, got to Sicily, and it was clear what was going on right.
0: I mean, that's the hope some people have for Russia,
1: yeah. And the other sad thing is um, in textbook is that authoritarians say that they're going to make the nation great, but they their corruption ravages all of the institutions. And so what's gone on with the Russian military, like the first days of the war, when there were these intimations, you saw these elite units just getting having huge losses. I thought immediately that this was the toll of corruption, and it's like been like a paper tiger. And so, what what this war has revealed is the total bankruptcy of autocracy. How this mighty Russian military was actually eaten from within by corruption and by propaganda, institutionalized lying. So commanders are not you know telling the truth you don't tell any bad news it's it's uh it's the pathology of autocracy come to life
0: you know he, some people have said that almost everything trump has done has come straight from the authoritarian playbook this is from the guardian every dictator for example has built on the accomplishments of his predecessors what predecessors does donald trump have in america any
1: i mean there there as as a as a ruling figure You know, he far eclipses anything that Nixon did. But I truly see him as somebody who doesn't, as a a leadership model, doesn't have much precedent in America versus the robust tradition of American fascism and extremism, right? The grassroots or the tradition, the increasing um, extremism of the GOP, which then had the Tea Party phase and all of that. But that's why he leans on other autocrats, actually sitting autocrats. That's why when he met with Viktor Orban in 2019, he said, it was like a revelation, and he said, it's like we're twins. He found his soul, (laughs) his kindred spirit.
0: And the love letters with Kim Jong-un.
1: All of it. All of it. Mm -hmm.
0: You also write that strong men rely in part on patriarchy and machismo for power, right? But we've been talking we started the interview talking about Georgia Maloney, yeah. who's obviously not a man. Do we require a new term to talk about someone like Maloney? Or is her cultural political power different in some way?
1: Yeah, it's, it's for someone who wrote a book called Strongman. I at the end in, in the conclusion to that book, which I had turned it in the original manuscript in uh, summer of 2020, and I predicted that there would be a female-led authoritarian state. It's inevitable. Because this cohort, they're not getting any younger, this cohort of the Modi's and the Putin's. And women are very prominent in the far right. So we wouldn't perhaps have the um, Mussolini and Putin stripping the shirt off, the machismo, the using the body, uh, the the half-naked body as an emblem of strength. But I wrote, and I still believe, that the corruption, the racism, the violence would not change if you have a female leader, especially if they come from some kind of far-right background.
0: You talk about a term called gender washing. What's that?
1: So gender washing, it's a a political science uh, term for when you have these far-right female leaders who seek to put themselves forth as friends of women, as protectors of women, at the same time they are taking away women's rights, reproductive rights. And and by the way, Maloney's party, we can look to see what her party has done in that area where they've already been governing like in Verona, the city of Verona, and they've been making it much harder to access abortion. So things like that. But gender washing more broadly is when you have Women who, leaders who dress appropriately, like Le Pen, she's very bourgeois looking, perfect hair, understated, tasteful clothes. And this covers up the brutal racism and real life violent outcomes of their far-right rhetoric. That's gender washing.
0: And do you expect this trend to continue of women in the tradition of Le Pen and Melanie?
1: I do. And I think that it's just as likely uh, that the first U.S. female president would come from the right as from Democrats. We clearly, we were not ready for Hillary Clinton in some ways, um, but the the right, because of this stance on women, which is now, you know, we're going to protect the family uh, and the family has to be a man and a woman. So Maloney, to keep with that example, she's against Adoption by same sex couples. And this is very compelling. And like Orban's Hungary, they've had a lot of social assistance to women who stay home, or they've paid grandparents to take care of, you know, hopefully growing white families. So I think this will, this is very compelling to uh, many women who would gladly under this idea under this uh, illusion that this is going to be good for them, for women, they would vote for a female candidate.
0: I want to come back to something we were talking about earlier when we discussed that there are 25 or 30 percent of people in even liberal democracies and societies who are welcoming of a strongman type if that person came along. And one of the strategies would be to reduce that percentage in the population. That seems like not an immediate thing that can be accomplished. Do you, do you have any ideas about how, in, in the medium or longer term, we reduce that twenty-five to thirty percent to ten or fifteen percent, or is that not possible? I mean, are we hardwired in some ways?
1: Yeah, because the stratum of people who have authoritarian attitudes involves their feelings about non-political things, as I said, like schooling and family dynamics and hierarchies, and it's connected to patriarchy one way to approach that is a kind of uh, at the level of civic culture of civic education of schooling, being able to spread and circulate different ideas about power at, at root this is also about power. should power be collaborative or should it be authoritarian with hierarchies um, top down and we see this it's in corporations it's there are many nodes of this network of a certain way of thinking about power that is authoritarian there are a lot of little duches in corporations right right a lot of personality cults and so i conclude in the book that we until we get away from this fetishization this fetish of a certain kind of brute male power as equating it with strength Um, including national strength, we're going to keep replicating this authoritarianism in society.
0: Yeah, I wonder if my question is a little bit like, you know, the difference between saying that one of our strategies is to eliminate poverty, which I think you can aspire to, but you're never going to eliminate the bottom 1%, right? Because Mm -hmm. even if everyone gets richer, just as a matter of mathematics, 1% of the people at the bottom will remain 1% of the people at the bottom, even if you're all millionaires. Mm -hmm. And, And I wonder if that's the dynamic we have going on with, you know, a segment of the population being open to strong men.
1: yes, somewhat. The other thing that we can do is educate people in terms of disinformation to recognize disinformation by, and this would be ideally done in, at the level of, in schools. That's a very tough thing right now because under GOP influence, schools are acting in the opposite direction to ban any discussion of inequality and all kinds of subjects of racism and, you know, LGBTQ education, but ideally, uh, to, to kind of have a civic education where you taught people as they, there were programs at the regional level in, in Finland and in Italy, you teach people to recognize disinformation early on.
0: Could you engage in the following, to me, scary exercise based on your research and study and observations? So it's one thing to talk about what the Trump presidency was like and to analyze him. Uh, he, is not, he was not deposed. He lost an election, although he doesn't admit it. He could very well come back to power in 2024. And I've asked this question of other guests, but nobody who has your particular perspective and, and academic expertise. What does Trump too look like? through the lens of his being a strong man?
1: Someone like Trump is motivated by vengeance, by self-protection, and indeed, um, Trump plus uh, Berlusconi plus Putin all ran for office initially while they were under investigation, and you know this very well, and so governance becomes about self-preservation. So we could expect any kind of investigation, including January 6th, to be immediately shut down. We could expect an acceleration. There would be speed as important in autocracies. And Trump did a huge amount that's not fully acknowledged to purge the civil service in many sectors while he was there. But um, this would, there would be a kind of and people have talked about this a plan to have a mass purge of democratic uh, and rule of law abiding civil servants. You have to capture the civil service in order to have an autocracy. I mean, the Republicans have already done a lot of the groundwork uh, the electoral system, the civil service, local politics. So, a Trump, too, would kind of have a very quick program of vengeance. Against enemies, because that's the core of the authoritarian way of thinking. You must protect yourself by neutralizing anyone who can harm you. So People I'm can fearful. Investigate of that. you, yeah.
0: I'm fearful of that the other thing I'm fearful about, which you have alluded to, is that the other lesson he will have learned, like strong men who preceded him, was that you no, know, no longer will he make the mistake of having someone in his brain trust or in his cabinet or in his kitchen cabinet who has any kind of independent base. Or independent thoughts, uh, as you were saying about Putin. You know, he, he has to get to the point where everyone around him who has any authority to exercise Trump's will will, in fact, do so. No accidental generals with some moral compass. Mm-hmm. You're going to have an administration of of John Eastmans and people like that. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes, absolutely. And one uh, area I watch carefully because a third of my book is about um, coups, like, who knew it was going to be so relevant to America. But so I've studied a length, uh, the, um, civilian military relationships, what happens to them and, and more broadly security forces, law enforcement. So, um, I, I would worry. So, you know, general Milley, who was a bulwark against many, uh, bad things that could have happened. Um, there would be, you know, Nobody like Millie could be there in Trump too, so it wouldn't just be uh, civilian. There would be, and Mike Michael Flynn is very active with this. Um, And you know the the things that have come out about the Secret Service. There would be, I believe, internal purges in those security and military sectors, so that you could have an across the board. um, The Nazis used to call it synchronization all loyalists and and Trump was, you know he came in there and he was experimenting. That's why he had such a, a revolving door he kept hiring and firing because the longer this goes back to the paranoia, the longer they're there, the more uh, lackeys and loyalists they need and the more they commit corruption, the more the bar for who is loyal and what they'll put up with has to rise. So the moral bar has to descend. But the loyalty requests and criteria are no one can be loyal enough for the leader.
0: Last question, and I'm hoping you'll answer this in a somewhat hopeful way. <laughs> Based on history and precedent and your studies as opposed to you know, modern day current polling, can you make the case for why, I hope you'll say, it is unlikely that Trump would return to power?
1: I, I think it is um unlikely that Trump would return to power. He has so many investigations. He has a bedrock support of, of many, but Ron DeSantis is now backed by over 40 billionaires. And I think that um, the danger is that somebody like DeSantis, who's very extreme, but doesn't have the baggage of Trump, doesn't have the criminality, nobody has the range of criminality of Trump. Um, It's very difficult to replicate, maybe only Berlusconi in Italy. So somebody like DeSantis can come and seem like a moderate and normal, as David Frum said, you know, politician, and yet could act in a similarly vengeful way.
0: So that's not exactly good news.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, Trump not returning to power would be a huge victory because Trump represents a a very unique level of danger, because of his foreign connections, his money laundering. There is no one else who is as dangerous as he is.
0: Not even Ron DeSantis.
1: No, because because Trump's past of and and the way his business operates, that that's a whole other thing.
0: Okay, well, I'll take that for now. Yes, <laughs> an upbeat note. Yes, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. The book that we have talked about. Is Strong Men from Mussolini to the present. I urge everyone to read it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. My conversation with Ruth Ben Giat continues from members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just one dollar for a month, head to Cafe.com slash Insider. And for a limited time, new members can get 40% off the annual membership price with the special code MIDTERMS. Again, head to Cafe.com slash insider and use the code MIDTERMS for 40% off the annual price. As we end the show this week, I just want to acknowledge how hard it can be to maintain optimism these days. We have the march of autocracy. We have deep polarization. There is war in Ukraine. There is talk of nuclear weapons in that war. We have inflation. We have the end of Roe v. Wade. The pandemic is still with us. And our political future is very uncertain. As I said at the beginning of the show when asked how I am, I'm uneasy. But despite the tumult and turmoil and uncertainty, there are reasons to be optimistic. As my guest, Karim Sajidpour, said this week on our latest episode of In Brief, the widespread protests in Iran are perhaps a sign that something is happening in that country that could lead to a more promising future, for Iranian women. Nuclear threats aside, Ukraine is winning against Russia. And it looks like Democrats may well keep control of the Senate. Against this backdrop, I wanted to mention a piece that caught my eye this week in the Washington Post. It's written by former governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels. He writes about a group of people in Warsaw, Indiana, known as the Warsaw Breakfast Optimist Club. Members meet every Wednesday at 7 a.m. It's pretty early to discuss their upcoming projects and fundraisers, which center around youth service, and to recite the optimist creed. Daniels highlights some passages of the creed that, as he says, point the person taking the pledge towards others. One of the tenets is, make all your friends feel that there is something in them. Here's another. Be just as enthusiastic about the success of others as you are about your own. The Warsaw Breakfast Optimist Club is part of the Broader Optimist International, an organization founded in Buffalo, New York in 1911 as a means to find respite in hard times. It now has more than 2,500 local clubs that meet on a weekly basis to help serve the youth in their communities. As we face challenges in our daily lives and across the world, our focus, understandably, is often on the negative, and it can be difficult to be optimistic. But we must not allow the bad To cloud out all of the good. It is hard sometimes. It's hard for me, as I imagine it must be sometimes for you. But like the 14th Dalai Lama says, choose to be optimistic. It feels better. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ruth ben giat If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The Cafe team is David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.